2: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. On the 27th of February 1763, thousands of enslaved people in the Dutch colony of Babis, now Guyana, rose up in rebellion. It was a revolt that came surprisingly close to succeeding, and the revolutionaries remained in contention for power in the colony for an entire year. Historian Mariolina Kars has drawn on forgotten Dutch archives for her 2020 book Blood on the River, which pieces the rebellion together through the stories of the people involved. The book has recently been shortlisted for the 2021 Kundal History Prize, of which History Extra is a media partner. Putting the questions
3: to Marielina was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Thank you so much, Marielina, for joining us. Uh, and your book considers a little-known rebellion by enslaved people in the Dutch colony along the Berbice River that is in today's Guyana in South America. Uh, it started in 1763. Um, and I wondered if we could start by hearing from you a little on what brought you to this little-known history. Absolutely. Um, I had finished a book
4: about a Farmers' Rebellion in the 1760s in, an, in a British colony, uh, North Carolina, uh, on the eve of the American Revolution. And then I finished this, that book. I really wanted to branch out from the, the British uh, North American colonies into the wider Atlantic world. I thought it would also be great to be able to do research in the Netherlands since I grew up there. And so I went to the archives in The Hague and started poking around. Uh, and came across uh, 100 feet of documents about a colony I knew very little about called Berbice. And within that collection, I found a huge cache of manuscripts about this slave rebellion that happened in 1763 and 1764. And I quickly realized that the records to talk about this slave rebellion were quite extraordinary. First of all, most slave rebellions were over in the blink of an eye. They were uh, suppressed really quickly within hours or days. And this one went on for more than a year. But also the records turned out to be very extensive. There was a daily journal uh, from the Dutch governor uh, that when I transcribed it, I think came to 400 single spaced pages on my computer. There were all these letters back and forth between the Dutch authorities in, uh, in Holland and the colonial authorities in Berbice. There were um, military reports, uh, reports from soldiers who went on expeditions to go try to catch these uh, enslaved rebels. Uh, but more extraordinary, because these are all the sort of normal things that you would expect in a colonial archive, but the, the two unusual sources were about 500 pages of investigations, as the Dutch called it, where they questioned um, people they suspected of being rebels, people they who were bystanders, people who were witnesses, and they um they examined them they uh, questioned them about what they had seen and uh, and and what they had experienced during the rebellion and the the number of people uh, questioned almost 900 amounted to almost half the surviving adults and secondly there turned out to be these amazing letters written by the rebel leader who called himself governor kofi and the Dutch governor. And there were about 10 or 15 letters these two men exchanged as part of a effort on the part of Kofi to bring this conflict to an end through diplomacy. And while that effort at diplomacy didn't work, the these letters provide some really interesting insight into the thinking of the rebels. And so when I realized that this rebellion was so long, lasted so long, was so well-documented, but it turned out had been so little written about, I, I really couldn't resist.
3: Absolutely. It sounds like a remarkable um, archive and remarkable sources. How, um, without obviously skipping us too ahead, because we will talk about um Birbison and this rebellion in a little while, how unprecedented uh, is this um, set of resources? You know, can you give us a little more context on that? Sure. I think for the 18th
4: century, they're really quite uh, quite rare. For instance, uh, there was a, a massive slave rebellion in Jamaica in 1760, known as Tacky's Revolt, but all those judicial investigations have disappeared. Um, so when we write about uh, a Tacky's Revolt, and somebody just wrote a wonderful book about it, uh, Vincent Brown, um, there, There is no direct uh, evidence uh, from the rebelling people themselves. Um, the other major rebellion in the 18th century, one of the other major ones, of course, is the Haitian uh, revolution, the, the rebellion on Saint-Domingue, which becomes the Haitian revolution. And of course, there we don't have judicial records because the rebels win. And so... These records for Berbice really are quite unusual. We have such records in the 19th century, but for the 18th century, I think this must be the largest such archive.
3: Absolutely, it does sound quite a a remarkable trove. Um, But I I guess, and as you have um, acknowledged, they they do come with their limitations as well, these sources.
4: Absolutely. Uh, Of course, the, the, the records generated by the Dutch um, have all the usual sort of ethnocentric and and racist suppositions in them that you would expect in the 18th century, and that are, are part of a typical colonial archive, and these examinations of course, are, have all the problems of documents that are generated under duress. Uh, people, the Dutch, ask leading questions. They ask uh, only about the things they're interested in. They're interested in three things. Who may have been a leader in the rebellion? Who destroyed Dutch property, particularly by setting fire to plantations? And they're really interested in what they call Christian murder, So they're not asking people questions about what we might want to know or what the now re-enslaved people themselves may have wanted to talk about. They ask only questions about what they want to know. And the people answering, of course, have every reason to to minimize, to deny, to lie, to make things up. Um, And in that respect, these are suspect sources. But on the other hand, um they do provide firsthand testimony and precisely because this rebellion lasted so long people were not completely free to say what they wanted because there were always others who would say no no it didn't it didn't go that way or that is not what happened and in a long rebellion like this people also were in conflict with each other uh and that means that Various people had reason to talk about each other. Uh, that was not just in, in a sense of making stuff up to in order to be exonerated. Uh, but, but I can see by uh, triangulating these records, uh, I made a huge database of, of all these people who were investigated and who spoke about whom and so on. By triangulating that evidence and by combining them, combining it with evidence that we have from the colonial authorities and from Native American spies or African descended spies, I I think that I got a pretty good idea of what was going on in that rebellion and uh, have found those
3: interrogations to have been extremely helpful. Well, it's fascinating insight into into um, the, your process and how this account has come together. And if we um, turn to it and to the events that are, are covered in, in Blood on the River, um, I wonder if we could uh, perhaps give our listeners a bit of context uh, before um, the events in your account of um, talking about when did European colonisers first arrive in this region on, on, on this coast?
4: Well, Europeans first began looking at what the uh, the Dutch and the English do called the wild coast of South America in the early uh, 1600s. And uh, Berbice itself is started in the 1620s. It grows slowly. It's in the hands of a private family, a Dutch family from the province of Zeeland. We have very few records left for the 17th century. So our understanding of what happens in Berbice is sketchy. Um, In the early 18th century, the colony is uh, transferred into the hands of a joint stock company in Amsterdam called the Society of Berbice, usually referred to as the company. And the company runs the colony Uh, Under the auspices of the Dutch government uh, for the rest of the 18th century, until it is finally taken over by the Dutch government directly in 1795, but then shortly thereafter uh, taken over by the British and it becomes uh, part of British Guiana. And Berbice is a, a riverine colony, it is built along the Berbice River. The Dutch plantations on the eve of the rebellion stretch for about 100 miles in this slim necklace, so to speak, uh, uh, on both sides of the river and on both sides of a tributary of the Berbice River called the Kanji River. And beyond the immediate plantations, there are savannas and then tropical rainforest which are inhabited really only by native peoples and where the Dutch have absolutely no control. In fact, they barely know what's out there. So Dutch control is slim. The focus of life in the colony is the river itself. That's how people move up and down the river in dugout canoes or uh, in tent boats that were rowed by enslaved rowers. Uh, The Berbice is deep enough for small ocean ships uh, until about 200 miles uh, south, um, but mostly what you see on the rivers is is canoes uh, peddled by native people and by African descended people. And on the plantations, enslaved people grow coffee and cotton, uh, and only on a limited number of plantations do they grow sugar, because sugar plantations were expensive, and so only the company has enough money to invest in sugar plantations and that means that only about a third of the enslaved people in Berbice actually work in sugar fields.
3: So could you give us a sense of um, the scale of people, uh, how many people were living in this colony um, before just before the rebellion? Berbice is a sort
4: of a frontier colony. It's not nearly as developed as neighboring Suriname. There's only one itty-bitty town in the middle of the colony called New Amsterdam built around the fort called Fort Nassau. Um, Plantations have relatively primitive wooden houses on them. Uh, There are probably no more than about 350 Europeans in the colony of uh, about About half of them would have been Dutch, no more. 4,500 to 5,000 people of African descent and another 350 native people who are enslaved on plantations. So it's a small place. The company plantations are the largest ones and they may have between 100 and 150 people on them. The majority of what they call private plantations, plantations in the hands of individual uh, Europeans, can be quite small, running from 8 to 15 to 40 to 80 people. So the scale of plantation life in Berbice is much smaller than what we think of when we think about 18th century Barbados or Jamaica, for instance, where you could have plantations with three or 400 people. And that is true, too, in neighboring Suriname, In Berbice, it's really altogether a a, a more small-time affair.
3: Okay. Uh, And how much is known about where, um, in Africa, the enslaved people who were trafficked to uh, Berbice were were from? And could you give us a sense of um, their journeys, their lives? The majority of enslaved people would have come from the three areas
4: of Uh, West Africa that the Dutch were most involved in, about a third by the middle of the 18th century, would have come from the Gold Coast, what is now roughly Ghana another third would have come from the area north of that, roughly today's Senegambia, and another third would have come from West Central Africa. It is hard to know where exactly people came from, because just because ships leave from a particular area of the coast, captives could come from hundreds of miles inward. So, um, people in uh, the, the, the majority of uh, of the rebel leaders, for instance, uh, identify as Amina, which would suggest that they had would have been shipped from a Dutch tiny little uh, colony on the coast of West Africa. On the Gold Coast, uh, called uh, Mina Castle, uh, and so those folks were known as Mina or Elmina, um, and they identified as such. But that doesn't mean that they all were necessarily from what is now Ghana. Some may have come may have come from much further afield. So we have a rough idea where people came from, but we we don't know exactly because when sh- slave ships. Fly to the coast of West Africa and fill their holds. They might pick up 10 people here, 10 people there, 50 people in some other place. They didn't name people, so we don't know who came exactly from where. Uh,
3: and you've already described the, the frontier nature of this particular um, colony in Bibis. Um, could you explain some of the particular um tensions that were um, sort of bubbling in, in this environment in the mid-18th century that was leading to this um, idea of rebellion. Yes, uh, I think that in the
4: in the decade before the rebellion, a number of things are happening. There are a series of quite devastating epidemics, which mean that lots of Dutch folks are dying, Dutch soldiers are dying, Dutch administrators are dying. And it means both that the Europeans are weakened, but it probably also means that uh, because there are also significant deaths among the enslaved, that it seems likely that uh, the remaining Dutch people are working their enslaved people harder to make up for uh, for the loss of workers. We also know that there are trouts and, and other agricultural plagues, so it's not going very well uh, in terms of the economy. And then the Seven Years' War, uh, which uh, started in, in 1756 and ends in 1763, means that even though the Dutch are neutral in that war, Dutch shipping is interrupted in the Caribbean, and so because Berbice is not self-sufficient, the colony is dependent on supply ships from the Dutch Republic, and they don't arrive uh, as regularly as they normally did. And so enslaved people rebel first and foremost, I think, because they don't want to be enslaved but also because the conditions make the chance of success greater. And in their letters that they write to the Dutch authorities early on, they say we're rebelling because we were particularly poorly treated and we were very hungry.
3: Right, of course, yes, that that makes a a lot of sense. I think it's an important point to pick up on that you you note throughout is that there's not in this instance, one single experience or a single desire in in that um, idea of rebellion. As people had different attitudes towards rebellion, didn't they?
4: Yes, they did, and that is is one of the things that uh, I, I think is most interesting about the book that um, if you, you know, looking at it from the outside, uh, my students for always for instance, always think that all enslaved people were just waiting for the right moment to rebel. And of course, that is not quite true. I mean, rebellions were rarely successful. beast comes as close as any until the Haitian Revolution, uh, but ultimately does not succeed. So, Armed rebellion is extremely dangerous. Uh, even if you do succeed, it it usually means warfare. People will be dying. Um, so there is reluctance on the part of people, I think, to engage in rebellion. But what we also see in Berbice is that, as in any major uprising or revolution, people don't necessarily see eye to eye about what they want life to be like post-slavery. And so, what we see in Berbice that the leaders of the rebellion are folks from the Gold Coast, which are uh, high, very hierarchical societies where people are keen to advance themselves, in part by using enslaved labor. Um, it's these are militarized societies where many of the men have extensive military experience. And it appears that the leader of the rebellion, Governor Kofi, when he uh, engages in diplomacy with the Dutch governor, he's extremely bold in his demands. And he's basically saying, let's just divide the colony in two. You take the half closer to the coast, we'll take the half that's closer inland. You can do on your half what you want, we will do on our half what we want, but it's clear that he wants access to the coast in order to trade. And it it is also clear that during the rebellion, he is trying very hard to keep the company plantations going, and he is forcing the people who were enslaved there under the touch to work in the cane fields, because nobody wants to grow sugar voluntarily. And so it appears that what Kofi is after is a is a African-led state uh, with himself and his Amina people in charge, uh, where they will keep at least a certain plantations going with forced labor if necessary, so that they can both grow sugar and make rum for their own consumption, but likely also to sell it on the international market, as the Dutch have done, and that a fair number of enslaved people do not share this vision of post-emancipation life, and that people are reluctant to commit or they dodge the rebels altogether, and it appears that what many people want is to work their own provision grounds under the Dutch, enslaved people were forced to grow a lot of their own food in their own gardens, but people also became, they came to see these gardens as theirs, they grew crops, some of which they had brought from Africa, they grew medicinal herbs, they grew crops with spiritual powers. People care deeply about their gardens having come from agricultural areas. And it appears that what many people want is not to live once again in a hierarchical system where they may have to work for somebody else's gain against their will, but they want to be independent and autonomous and work their own plots of land. And so what we see in the Berbice Rebellion is multiple visions of what autonomy and independence look like. And so I'm I'm partly trying to say, yes, these rebels are admirable because they have the gumption and the guts and the vision to stand up against the Dutch. Um, but we shouldn't be too quick to judge the people who don't want to participate. It's not just fear that stops them, I think it is also a, a different vision and in that respect it reminds me a little bit of the American Revolution where a third of the colonists we sometimes think were really pro-rebellion, another third may have been pro-British and a, and a third or maybe a larger group were kind of not interested because the, the, what the leaders of the revolution stood for was not what they had in mind. Um, for for their independence. So it makes the Bear Beats Rebellion both very complex and absolutely a fascinating event.
3: Yes, I agree that those um, differences and, and in motive and experience are such a fascinating aspect of your book. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Well, I think the the
4: big issue that, of course, enslaved people have, they certainly have it in Berbice, is that they don't have allies. The Dutch have a long Atlantic reach. They get resupplied from the Dutch Republic. They eventually get soldiers from the Dutch Republic. That doesn't happen until... The end of 1763, and the soldiers are not super effective, but they do get more than a thousand of them. They can get new weapons, they can get medicine.
0: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging
3: I wonder if we could take a step back from this uh, larger uprising we've been talking about for a while to consider um, uh, another breakout that's in your book, the 1762 breakout attempt, which you write exposed the possibilities of collective action. Could we talk about how that sets the stage for this larger uprising? Sure. And when I was
4: looking at the records of Berbice in the 18th century before the rebellion, and these records have barely been studied, so I'm hoping the book will inspire others. But it is clear that there are small time breakouts, uh, uh, as the Dutch call them, uh, in Berbice almost every decade of its existence, where people on a plantation will get together and decide that they are... Uh, going to uh, stage a rebellion so that they can escape downriver and disappear into the jungle in the hopes of setting up uh, um, uh, their own individual autonomous village uh, in the in in the rainforest and live their lives as what are known as maroons people who had escaped slavery and and set up their own independent villages and these attempts at breakouts are often quickly suppressed within a day or two uh, the dutch capture the folks who who run away and and order is restored but in the summer of 1762 a larger one breaks out involving an entire plantation. um, And these folks succeed in uh, in disappearing uh, downriver. Um, And it takes the Dutch more than six weeks to capture most of them or kill them, or in other words, to, to suppress this breakout. And what it does, I think, is it gives enslaved people this notion that whoa, oh, the Dutch really are not very strong and there is a good chance that if we do this particularly on a larger scale that we might succeed. And it also creates among the Dutch a real paranoia that they're sitting on a powder cake, which they really can't control very well. And after the small, that, that 1762 rebellion is suppressed, there are constantly rumors about another one is coming, another one is coming, and the Dutch are very, they're very much afraid. And I think that when the big one breaks out in February of 1763, the Dutch have a certain defeatist attitude that comes from this earlier rebellion where they are just convinced that that they, it doesn't even make sense for them to fight back because they cannot win. And of course, there's also the, strange geography of the colony being so long and stretched out, the Dutch are very afraid of getting cut off from the coast and any possible escape. So that too means that as soon as this rebellion breaks out and involves in the beginning six rebellion or six plantations and then spreads rapidly, that the Dutch just go to the coast as fast as they can because they are so afraid that they'll be trapped and they'll all be murdered.
3: Right. Well, can we talk a little more about that—the the breaking out of this rebellion? It happened on a Sunday. Is that right?
4: Yes. As as do many rebellions, enslaved uh, rebellions, because Sundays are the days that many of the slaveholders have gone off to church, um, and and enslaved people um, are often not working, so um, so there is more time uh, to to set the rebellion in motion. This one happens on five or six plantations in the heart of the colony. Uh, The rebels take over uh, a a cache of weapons that is stored on one of those plantations for the Dutch militia. They arm themselves and then they spread their rebellion up and down the river um, as fast as they can, of course, because if they want to succeed, they need to get as many people as they possibly can involved. And so they go from plantation to plantation, assessing often where the leaders of that plantation, the the bomber as a driver is known in, in Berbice, and that would be the uh, one uh, an enslaved man who, who serves to keep the enslaved people working in the field. This was a position of authority and Bombas had a lot of authority among the enslaved. And so rebels sort of assess, you know, in each case, is the Bomba with us or against us? If he's with them, then they uh, they get him and the men of fighting age to come with them. If he's against them, they might fight him. They take the guns on plantations. They take foodstuffs. In some cases, they take women along. Um, and they sort of spread their rebellion um, as rapidly as they can. And the Dutch are, in many cases... Uh, Fleeing, uh, they, they bury their valuables and they collect at Fort Nassau, and then after a couple of days of being at Fort Nassau in the middle of the colony, they, they realize we're going to be cut off, and that's when they set fire to the fort. They take, uh, uh, they they all pile onto a couple of ships that were in the small harbor there, merchant ships, um, and in fact, uh, a slave ship that had, had just uh, disgorged its its uh, load of captives, and they go to the coast, and from there, the majority take off for the Dutch Republic or neighboring colonies, and the Dutch governor, who is determined to win his colony back digs in on a company plantation near the coast with about uh, 100 people. And he he is forced to stay there for more than a year
3: as the rebels pretty much take over the entire colony. Okay, so they take over the colony. How much is known about? Does that match their aims in rebellion, their aims and hopes? Is that what they were hoping for when they rebelled? Is that known or um, what? What? what's the outcome there?
4: I think that they—they. They, I think that the rebellion may well have succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. I—I I think that they intended to get as big as they possibly could, but I'm not sure they expected the Dutch to quite cave the way they do. Um, the fact that. Kofi, when he begins to negotiate by July, is saying, let's divide the colony in half, suggests to me that he was not intending to take over plantations and then disappear into the jungle. I think his aim was to to set up his own colony there, to set up his own state. Um, So I think the aim of the rebellion was quite bold and, and quite big. Um, but I, but at the same time, uh, the fact that the rebels pretty much within a week make themselves master of the entire colony is, is, is I think quite
3: extraordinary. Indeed. And, and perhaps could you say a little more about the you know this is very unprecedented for, for this sort of level of success at this time. as you say, they were often suppressed very rapidly. Yes, they're often suppressed very rapidly. I think it's in
4: part because the Dutch are poorly armed. I think that the uh, rebels were no doubt very well organized. There is very little in the records about how they organized. But for them to have succeeded like this, there must have been a serious level of organization. So I think it's both organization and the total disarray in which the Dutch find themselves. At the same time, the rebels attack the Dutch when they're dug in on this plantation uh, in two big attacks, one in April and one in May, and they do not succeed in overtaking them. In part by then the Dutch have been uh, resupplied uh, with soldiers from neighboring Suriname and others have come from St. A Dutch colony in the Caribbean, uh, and that means that there are not there, there are a couple of hundred uh, uh, Europeans there now, but also the cannon that the Dutch have on the couple of merchant ships that are anchored in front of that colony really helped them beat back the rebels, and so for a number of months, this rebellion is really in a stalemate, the Dutch can't certainly take their colony back, but the rebels can't quite push the the Dutch out altogether. And that is when I think Governor Kofi decides to, to try diplomacy.
3: Can we talk a little more about Kofi then, because you've mentioned him already, but I wonder if we could talk a bit more about what's known um, about his history and his role in all of this.
4: Yeah, I I know less about him than I would like Um, in their interrogations. People don't talk about him a great deal, in part because the Dutch never ask about him. Um, It is uh, thought uh, that he came to Berbice as a child. Um, So he was an African, but a highly Creolized one, meaning that he had lived among Dutch people for quite a while. He had been initially trained as a house servant and later became a cooper, so he was an artisan. He must have been highly charismatic because uh, people from the Gold Coast selected leaders who were wise and uh, and who were charismatic. And there is some talk uh, that he was picked because he was so wise. But I don't know what he looked like, whether he was married, whether he had children. Those are all things I do not know. He had a second in command uh, who uh, called Captain Akara. And it's clear that Kofi sort of handles the civil government, and Akara is in charge of the military. After a while, Kofi takes over Fort Nassau, uh, begins to live in the former quarters of the Dutch governor, and that is uh, where his headquarters are. and Um, It's clear that the the rebels are um, uh, collecting weapons and food and animals from the plantations, that they keep uh, careful administration of all that, because if they want to win or at least make sure that they don't lose, they need a sizable army and they need to be able to feed their soldiers.
3: And so while this... this, um attempt at government is, is more successful than um, a- any others of the time, it, it, it's not to succeed. I wonder if we can talk about what happens next for um, Kofi. Well, I think the, the big issue that,
4: of course, enslaved people have, they certainly have it in beast, is that they don't have allies The Dutch have a long Atlantic reach. They get resupplied from the Dutch Republic. They eventually get soldiers from the Dutch Republic. That doesn't happen until the end of 1763. And the soldiers are not super effective, but they do get more than a thousand of them. They can get new weapons. They can get medicine. And what the rebels lack is allies, And they they lack that long Atlantic reach. They cannot be resupplied with guns. They cannot be resupplied with gunpowder. They cannot be resupplied with food and medicine. The Dutch are also um, really aided by the fact that Native Americans living in the area um, come to the aid of the Dutch because they have treaties with them uh, that... Uh, give them sort of favored trading uh, status in exchange for potential military aid in case of a foreign attack or a slave rebellion. And so Arawak and uh, and, uh, uh, Carib Indians uh, come to the aid of the Dutch, and that makes a humongous difference. Uh, because they close off the colony so that when it becomes clearer that the rebels can't win, they can't escape either. And so I think it's really this lack of allies that uh, ultimately um, spells the, the death knell for the rebellion. And if you look at a more at a successful rebellion, like the huge uprising in the 1790s in Saint-Domingue, there are times when the leader of that rebellion uh, Toussaint Louverture uh, gets weapons and aid from the Spanish who occupy the other half of the islands of Hispaniola and who are eager to see the French defeated. There is no one in the 1760s who is eager to see the Dutch defeated. And so there is no
3: one to help Kofi. And so what does that mean for his actions and the um, his reactions to the dissent that follows these tensions? Well, the attempt at diplomacy uh, ultimately uh, costs him his
4: life. It is clear that not all his officers agree with his attempt to to use diplomacy to bring this rebellion to a a peaceful ending. Uh, Eventually a number of his officers uh, stage a coup against him and he commits suicide sometime early in the fall of 1763. After that, uh, he is followed by a a leader named Atta, but it appears that Atta is fairly authoritarian and other uh, leaders who have their own ethnic followers um, fight against Atta and the rebellion begins to fall apart along sort of... um, ethnic lines and political lines i think and becomes as much a civil war of people fighting each other as it is a, a a fight for home rule against the dutch if if you want and that 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 civil war combined with running out of guns running out of food and then that coinciding with the dutch receiving massive numbers of soldiers from europe um, ineffective as many of them may have been, eventually, even though it takes another five or six months, spells the end of this rebellion. But really, the Dutch don't completely take their colony back until the summer of 1764.
3: So, as you mentioned, this the the um, measure of success of this rebellion is is unprecedented, and and though it does fail, it's it's very remarkable stuff and i wonder if we could return to the um sources that we, you were talking about at the very start of this interview um and, and you could say a bit about how then uh, what the ramifications are and how that is represented in in the sources
4: well the the sources really give me amazing insight into not only how leaders experience that rebellion but in how ordinary Um, enslaved people in Berbice fair after the rebellion breaks out. And so it shows us that um, rebellions are, uh, of course, very heady moments. I mean, there's a lot of possibility there and people are free of the Dutch for a good amount of time. But it is also a time period in which many people become refugees, where people have to flee their own plantations, where people experience hunger and exposure. And so rebellions are both moments full of possibility, but they're also wars. And as wars, they bring enormous suffering with them. Um, and we don't really know how people pick up the pieces when the Dutch come and reimpose mm-hmm. slavery in 1764. Um, it, it must have been extraordinarily hard in the end, between a third and a fifth of the people who were there before the rebellion do not survive, uh, and that means that they lose their lives uh, in battles but also through exposure, and through hunger, uh, and through disease, of course, um, and Berbys itself uh, never quite recovers economically uh, under the Dutch. It, it becomes briefly a real crown jewel in the British Empire in the early 19th century, but in the 18th century, uh, it, it, Berbys has a hard time recovering, and the uh, the, the company only survives thanks to huge loans from the Dutch government, which it can never repay. And so the, the repercussions of this, probably the biggest repercussion is that this kind of rebellion and uh, the activities of Maroons in neighboring Suriname, I think eventually convinced the Dutch government that leaving colonies in the hands of private companies that are too big to fail but don't really have the funds to adequately defend these colonies particularly from uh, from rebellion of of enforced uh, laborers that in 1795 the Dutch government decided that they're just going to take over management of these colonies directly um, but and 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 um, We do know that the memory of this rebellion in Berbice among the enslaved lives on for a very long time. Uh, There are a number of other rebellions and conspiracies there, and um, a friend just told me about um, somebody being um, investigated by the British in in 1814, an enslaved person who talks about what, what he has heard about that rebellion in Berbice in
3: 1763. Yes, and aside from um those more um local rebellions, if I can use that term, um you've already mentioned that that there are other rebellions that follow that some listeners might be already aware of, but I wonder if we could um hear a bit more about where this instance sits in both other rebellions by enslaved people but also in the broader context of global revolution at this time. Yeah, I I
4: think that the Verbis Rebellion really happens very much at the beginning of what we generally call the Age of Revolutions, which people roughly date from the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763. You could start it in 1760 with Tacky's revolt in Jamaica, running through those two revolts in Jamaica and Berbice, then the American Revolution. Uh, obviously, the the revolution in in Haiti and a number of other slave rebellions in the Caribbean in the seventeen nineties, through the wars for independence in in Central and South America in the 1810s and eighteen twenties, and I think that the, the dilemma that we see running through all through that entire age is that leaders and ordinary people don't necessarily see eye to eye when it comes to understanding what autonomy and independence means I spoke about it in the American Revolution already that uh, and but we see it in Haiti we, we, we see it everywhere that the 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 the, the, the it, this is an age in which um, We have a world capitalist system that in many places is used, that uses forced labor, bonded labor, and in which elites in all of these revolutions and rebellions have a particular image of what they want and how they want to end up on top. And many ordinary people, whether they be enslaved or native people or uh, colonial uh, farmers have a very different sense of how they would like to lead, uh, uh, lead their lives and how they would like not to be exploited by others. And that conflict, I think, runs through the entire age of revolution, and it's and it's quite
3: visible even in a, a slave rebellion like the one in Berbice. Absolutely. Well, uh, Marilena, thank you so much for, for chatting to us about this um, fascinating history today. Um, I wonder if I could uh, finish by asking you, um, do you think there are any steps left or next steps with the sources that you, you um, looked at for this book? Um, would you like to see anything happening with translations or um, where they could be made available next? Uh,
4: Absolutely. I'm glad you asked that. I have given a number of talks in Guyana, for instance, and people there um, really would like to be able to read the records about their own ancestors, but very few people can read Dutch. And so the Dutch archives in The Hague have just uh, agreed to make a number of these Uh, judicial interrogations um, available, they're all in fact already available online, but to translate them into English so that people in Guyana can read them. Um, And in general, I, I hope that Uh, more people not only um, in the United States and and in Holland and in Britain but people in Guyana will begin to study these records because they're extremely rich and there is so much work that can still be done to better understand the lives of enslaved people in that particular part of the Caribbean. So I'm hoping that the, the book will make people realize that there is a total treasure trove out there that has really not been mined at all.
2: That was Marielina Cars, Blood on the River, the untold story of the Babise Slave Rebellion, a chronicle of mutiny and freedom on the Wild Coast, is published by the New Press and is available now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again tomorrow when Dr Wayne Dooling will be tackling your questions on apartheid.